This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first Bible reading is from Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Today's second reading is taken from Daniel 6. It's a bit long, but it's worth it. Thank you. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps made, were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators, administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men, as a group, found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, 
which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, one who is from, of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men as a group, sorry, the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. Then he, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when, when Daniel was lifted out from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Keep that Daniel 6 reading in front of you. And we also have a sermon outline that you can use to help you follow and take some notes. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, for their precepts, promises, directions and light. And so in them today, may we learn of Christ, grasp his truth and have grace to follow in his steps. 
Amen. Well, Daniel in the lion's den, welcome to Sunday school. An inspiring lesson about faith and faithfulness, a narrow escape from death, and an unlikely friendship with the misunderstood King Darius. Now, right now, we could kind of go over the story, perhaps with some fun pictures or some, even some puppets. I could get out the colouring. We could even make some paper plate lion's faces with the yellow crepe paper, and uh, we'd all kind of go home happy. As I read the story earlier this week, I, I was really struck at how much it did read like a children's story. There's a simplicity to the characters and to the narrative turns that make it genuinely exciting but also a little familiar and a little predictable. This morning I want us to look again at this story, and not just at its details, but the context of it within the grand story of the Bible. Because in that context, this isn't just a story about faithfulness and trust in God, but also about the God who is the King of Kings, who stands over all things, but you might have also noticed a remarkable similarity between Daniel's story and the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the parallels here, I think, are so striking and so relevant for us to understand this passage in our Christian context that I want us to look at this story, especially with the image of Jesus in our mind. And so when we do, I think that we'll get a deeper insight into Daniel a richer understanding of the life and work of Jesus, and a transformative vision of faith and deliverance in our own lives. Now, the story begins with introducing us to three characters. First, we meet the mighty and powerful King Darius. Now, I do want to pause just for a minute on this Darius the Mede. Uh, he's called Darius the Mede just before, at the end of chapter 5 and at the end of chapter 6. And the book of Daniel now is known for uh, some of its historical difficulties. And Darius the Mede is a big one. Simply put, apart from here, history does not, doesn't know anything about a Darius the Mede. The king who overthrew the Babylonians was Cyrus the Great, who controlled the Medo-Persian Empire. And about 20 years later, we get Darius the Great one of the kings of Persia. That's not for another 20 years and a few kings later. Now, there could be some ways to reconcile this historically. Maybe Darius the Mede was an alternative throne name for Cyrus, or maybe he was a top Persian official or a co-regent. And who knows what future archaeological discoveries might throw up and reveal to us about the identity of this Darius the Mede. But I think that in the narrative world of Daniel... What we have is an impressionistic picture of the rise and fall of kingdoms and powers. And so we had the mighty Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the first four chapters. And then we have the foolish Belshazzar under whom the kingdom of Babylon fell. And now we have this powerful Darius the Mede of the Medo-Persian Empire, referring you know, either to Cyrus or to Darius but perhaps blending some of those characters. But the point is here, the point here that I want to make is that Darius is here the almighty king who oversees the largest empire the world had ever seen, stretching from Greece in the west all the way over to India in the east, way down into northern Africa in the south. 
And he controls this vast and powerful administrative network. Now, this already puts the story in a different and bigger context than we might otherwise see, into the context of the kingdom of God. Because in the book of Daniel, when we meet a king like this, as we've seen already, a king like this poses a potential threat or problem or challenge to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords, the Lord God. And so this is a competition between the powers. Well, next we meet Daniel. He's our faith-filled, wise protagonist. Through, we've, we've, got, we've been with him through the last five chapters. And he's faithful, he's trustworthy, and he's found to be impeccable. Now, it's a great start to the story, but the results are a little mixed. Now, on the one hand, he's so excellent at his job that he's going to get a big promotion and oversee the whole of the kingdom underneath the king. But this excellence also meets with jealousy and opposition. Which brings us to the third main set of characters, the administrators and satraps. They plot together to bring Daniel down. And they come up with an ingenious plan. And so they play to the vanity of Darius. And they insist that he makes a decree that no one can pray to any god except for him, punishable by death. And so the stage is set, and we know that Daniel won't take this lying down. I think already there are some clear affinities with the life of Jesus. Like Daniel, Jesus was a faithful and faith-filled Jewish man. And like Daniel, he had a strained relationship with the authorities. Yes, there were some Jewish and Roman leaders who sought after him to listen to him and even to follow him. And even at his trial, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, was reluctant to execute him. But the leaders and the crowds, they banded together to get rid of him because of their jealousy. Of course, they couldn't find any corruption in him. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. So they had to resort to half-truths and accuse him of treason, of refusing to bow down to the king. Now, for us... With both Daniel and Jesus before us, God's faithful will always face opposition. Just as Daniel did and just as Jesus did, we should expect it if we're going to live a godly life. Now, of course, living like this, living faithfully, can bring great good too, as it did for Daniel. Like Daniel, you and I should be known for working hard for others, for always being trustworthy and free of negligence or corruption. And many of you here live and serve like that in your lives in very powerful ways. And so, in part, this is a message. Keep going. Keep going like that. But living like this will also bring opposition, whether it be personal opposition or a clash of allegiances. And so the personal opposition can come through jealousy or through a prejudice and dislike against Christians or even a perverse antagonism to that which is good. I've spoken to some of you who have experienced just this kind of thing in your life, and especially when you refuse to bow down to the gods of this age. As cultural Christianity recedes, there's more and more room for secular values and secular governments to take on a transcendent and religious quality, and so demand our allegiance in new ways. 
And sometimes this will clash with our allegiance with the true and living God. And so God's people, we will always face opposition. So what will Daniel do? What would you do? Well, when I put myself in this situation, I think, well, surely I could just maybe take a break off prayer for a month. It's only a month. Or uh, maybe I could just go and pray secretly in my bedroom, like Jesus says that I should do. But what does Daniel do? He goes straight up to his upper room, the highest room in the house, throws open the windows so all of Jerusalem can see in, and he prays to his God for everyone to see. And I, I don't think this is just a show. Because this is prayer just as he had done before, as it says. And this is genuine prayer too because he needs help. He kneels in deep humility where the custom was typically to stand to pray. And he prays three times a day where the custom would normally have been to pray in the morning and evening. He does that out of extreme need. And notice here that Daniel, he doesn't just ask God for help but he gives God thanks. What a remarkable thing to do under distress like that. He doesn't just flip out. He slows down and he thanks God for the things that God has indeed given him. And it is right and fitting to do so. Daniel's prayer is genuine, but it's also defiant. By praying like this and praying so publicly, Daniel denies the power of the king, denies that he has any ultimate power and instead acknowledges that it's God who has the ultimate power. And so through his prayers, Daniel displays absolute allegiance to his God and absolute dependence on his God. Jesus' life was filled with prayer from beginning to end. And we hear about it in bits and pieces. But it's only when the powers close in to crucify him that we listen in. We're able to listen in and hear his prayers. The night before he died, he invited his disciples up into the upper room to share the Passover together, which was filled with prayers of thanksgiving to God for his past deliverance of his people and prayers for the continuing deliverance. And then he prayed for his disciples. He knew the trials that they would face. And so he pleaded with God for help. After dinner, he went for a walk outside down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he knelt down in desperation on his knees and pleaded with God, with the Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. But it was on the cross that Jesus' allegiance and dependence to his Father really come to light. As he was hanging there on the cross, he opened his lips in prayer. You know what he prayed? He prayed for the forgiveness of even those who would kill him. And then in utter dependence on his God, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Even to the point of death, Jesus showed absolute allegiance and dependence in prayer. 
Now today, we are called to this same single-minded allegiance and dependence on God, especially through our prayer. Now sometimes our allegiance to God will require explicit civil disobedience. This is what Christians do when they meet secretly in places like North Korea or when they smuggle Bibles into places like Yemen or parts of Central Asia. But even when we pray, we defy the powers that stand against God and his people. I think this gives us a, a surprising insight into what prayer actually is. Sometimes it can feel like something that's kind of may, maybe uh, mundane or kind of an everyday thing that we might go through uh, just to kind of satisfy our, our spiritual life. But prayer is a defiance of the powers of this world and of anything that might stand against us. Because when we do it, we refuse to be rattled and instead depend on God and thank God even in those times. And we refuse to let anything else dominate our thoughts. And instead, we slow down and we engage with our God. And prayer, it doesn't engage the powers on their terms. Instead, it says, no, they don't have any, any ultimate power. It's the God to whom we pray. He is the one who has ultimate power. And so prayer, I think, is a kind of cultural resistance too that resists the idols of our times. You know, our culture wants us to protect ourselves and to make something of ourselves. But when we pray, we humble ourselves before God and we show our absolute dependence on him and not on ourselves. Our culture wants us to acquire more and more. But when you pray, you express thankfulness to your God and true contentment for his daily bread. Our culture is so busy and committed to making things happen. But when you pray, you stop hurrying. You stop being productive and instead just be with your God. And this really adds a layer of significance to our humble daily prayers and the prayers that we do here on a Sunday, doesn't it? Because when you pray like this, you express your absolute allegiance to God and dependence on God, whatever it is that you face. So Daniel, he faithfully and fervently prays. But the schemers, they reappear. They come and they find him in his room. And so they go straight to the king to tell him what's been happening. The king is bound by the, his own laws and despite his, his personal connection with Daniel, he is bound to throw, throw Daniel into the pit, into the pit, the den full of lions, soon to be devoured. Now, this, uh, was, prob- this was just a regular, regular pit, the kind of thing, dungeon that might have been in a, in a king's palace. And uh, it was fairly usual for Persian kings to have lions on hand, actually, uh, for the purposes of hunting. But in the Bible, the den or the pit is a symbol of death and the underworld. And in Daniel, as, as the book progresses, we see that the lion in Daniel 7 is a picture of, represents one of the great kingdoms 
of the world that presses against the kingdom of God. And so what I think we have here in the context of the book, of a whole, the book as a whole is not just a kind of grisly and unpleasant and maybe theatrical way to die, but the picture that Daniel's doom is a terrible death at the hands of these earthly powers that are arrayed against him. And so the pit and Daniel's doom is sealed, sealed with a stone and with the imperial seal. So even the king knows that his fate is sealed. It's an impossible situation and the king has the final word. It's hard to know if it's half mocking or if it's genuine. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. But from Daniel and from his God, we hear nothing. When the son of God prayed to his father, you might have expected that the father said, yep, okay, let's change plans. Let's not go through with this. Let's send a legion of, a legion of angels to turn this around. But despite his pleas, Jesus, the son, was crucified and killed, buried in a tomb, the stone rolled over and sealed with an imperial seal. Now, superficially, I think when we read the story of Daniel, it can appear to promise deliverance, uh, miraculous deliverance from death and difficulty. But I don't think it's so simple because there, that, he, that, that heavy symbolism that I was talking about portrays Daniel's experience, just, just what he went through as a sort of death, a terrible ordeal as a symbolic death. And so even on its own terms, it admits that God's faithful will go through terrible trials, even to the point of death. And maybe you know the experience of terrible trial in your own life. And Christians over the world today, let us not be flippant about this, pray for help, but still die of famine and disease and persecution. And that's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus. And so in one respect, we shouldn't expect anything different. But even though we die, we are called, like Daniel, to enter even into that pit and face the lions right in their mouths. And whether we are eaten or not, to remain a faithful servant to God until the very end. Well, the situation looks pretty hopeless for Daniel. Now, even the king, the mighty King Darius, loses sleep over it. But after a restless night, he hurries down to the pit, hurries down to the den, rolls the stone away, and finds, miraculously, after he calls out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God delivered you? Has your God been able to rescue you from the mouth of the lions? And finally, we hear Daniel speak for the first time. My God has sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in God's sight. The stone is rolled away. He is found without a scratch because he was faithful to God and to the king. And 
perhaps in a grisly way, in a case of poetic justice, the conspirators and their families meet an awful death devoured by the ravenous lions. Early on the third day, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. But they found that the stone had been rolled away and that Jesus wasn't there. He had been raised. And like Daniel, his resurrection was a vindication. It was a vindication of his innocence, that he was in the right and that he was the Son of God, the Lord, the Messiah, who had now defeated sin, defeated Satan, and defeated death. And so it's in this that we find the key to understanding Daniel 6 for us. Because Daniel's story is an incredible story of prayer and faithfulness. But it's nothing quite like the guarantee that we would ever be saved from the pit, let alone that God's kingdom would be delivered from the spiritual and earthly powers that come against it. But Jesus' story is different It is an example of prayer and faithfulness for us. But his life guarantees our life too. His resurrection guarantees new life for the world. Because when Jesus was raised, he wasn't raised alone. Because he was raised, you and I, when we trust in him, we will be raised too. He brings us with him in his resurrection and his glory. And so he delivers us. He will finally deliver us. Whatever we might face now, he will finally deliver us when he raises us from the dead, from whatever powers might oppose us and whatever powers might stand against God and his kingdom. And so it's the king's final declaration that has the last word. The living God is the God who saves. The living God endures in the face of threatening imperial powers and human machinations because the Son of God entered into the pit and was raised even for us. And so we will be saved even though we die. He will rescue us from the power of the lions and God's people will endure forever with him. Let's pray. our powerful and mighty and loving Heavenly Father. We praise you that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who endures through all. We praise you that by your mighty power you raised our Lord Jesus from the dead and by his resurrection you give us life and deliverance and freedom. And so, Father, help us to be like Daniel, like our Lord Jesus to commit ourselves in absolute allegiance and dependence in prayer and to commit ourselves to you and to your kingdom above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.